Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I'm Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. And this evening, our episode is entitled Sex Matters, the Pelvic Floor Connection. And our guest is none other than Dr. Joanne Michelle Martin. Dr. Martin is a near and dear friend of mine, but in addition to that, she is a pelvic floor specialist of 13 years. Born and raised in Barbados, Dr. Martin would have graduated from Queens College Secondary School and then would have gone on to do her graduate studies at the New York Institute of Technology, where she graduated with a doctorate in physical therapy in 2007. Dr. Martin is also a former member of the junior national volleyball team and the women's national volleyball team here on the island. And she specializes in treating a variety of conditions in men, women, and children, including pelvic pain, bladder and bowel issues, as well as sexual dysfunction. Simply put, anything to do with pee, poop, or sex. Dr. Martin owns JMM Health Solutions, located in Georgia, and sees clients both virtually and in person. She has created a few online programs for pregnant women and moms, as well as a 12-week coaching program for women with endometriosis. And another for women suffering from dyspareunia, or pain with sex. Additionally, she serves as a mentor and a business coach. And when she's not working with her clients, she enjoys spending time with her family and coaching volleyball, which she has done for about 20 years. Good afternoon, Dr. Martin, how are you doing? Good afternoon, thank you so much for having me. Good. Dr. Martin, I know this is a hot topic, sometimes often shied away from, almost to the point of taboo, but first of all, I want you to explain to me or let's orient our guests about exactly what is the pelvic floor and what is the normal role for the pelvic floor. Absolutely. So the, the, everyone has a pelvis and I usually start off any type of conversation that I have by just letting people know because oftentimes people think that this is something that just affects women. Um, but everyone has a pelvis, and within the pelvis are a group of muscles known as the pelvic floor muscles, and these muscles have a variety of functions. First of all, they aid to stabilize the pelvis when the muscles, the other muscles and limbs are moving. So when the trunk is moving, when the hips, the legs are moving, um, they're stabilizing the pelvis so that you, you know, you're not collapsing and falling all over the place. Um, they also support the pelvic organs, so your bladder, the rectum, in women that would be the uterus, and in men the prostate. Um, they also function in sexual appreciation, which is kind of what we're going to talk a little bit about today, um, by allowing sexual pleasure um, and, and helping within that function. Um, and then they also, there's also lymphatic drainage in there. And so the, the pumping action of the muscles um, help with drainage of blood um, within the region. So for example, 
um, when men are, you know, having an erection, the muscles have to clench in order for them to maintain that. And then when the erection, you know, when they're done, the muscles can relax and that blood can, can recede from the penile shaft and so on. So we have, we have quite a few functions in there. These are normal daily functions. They also act in continence. So these muscles are responsible for keeping you dry. We have a saying that, you know, um, the pelvic floor muscles keep pee and poop off the floor. Um, because these muscles act like little, you know, little um, shutoff valves for the urine and for the feces. So they help you to control that as well. So they're very, very, very important um, in our normal day-to-day -day function and for activities that we may oftentimes take for granted. Great. Excellent. So let's talk about uh, sex and, and the importance of the pelvic floor as it relates to, you started to allude to some of them, but let's first of all start to talk, let's do the men first for a change. We're going to cover the male topics first and then let's go into the females. I know generally we tend to cover women first, but this evening I am opting to, to present for the men first. So let's hear some of the, the conditions that a male can experience and how can physiotherapy really actually address some of those problems? So when we're talking about men, um, first and foremost, when we look at sexual function um, within men, a lot of men relate um, their sexuality, their sexual function as a vital and critical part of just their overall well-being and who they are. Um, and pelvic floor dysfunction has been associated with things like erectile dysfunction, um, the inability to ejaculate, the inability for a male to have an orgasm, things of that sort. And there are a couple of reasons why, and some of it is going to be similar, um, you know, men and women in terms of just the way that the muscles function. But oftentimes this is through hyperactivity of these muscles. So typically with any muscle, you want the muscle to be able to contract or shorten. You want the muscle to be able to relax and you want the muscle to have some semblance of control. So for example, if you think of your arm, you can see these muscles. So it's easy to relate, right? And if you decide that you wanted to bend your elbow and bring something up, pick something up, bending your elbow, you can. So think of a bicep curl. And then if you want to lower that weight down, now you're going to have to exhibit some semblance of control. The muscle can lengthen, the muscle can shorten, but you also have the ability to control stuff. So for example, if you didn't have any control and you had a weight in your hand, your hand would just drop and the weight would just fall, right? And it's the same thing with the pelvic floor muscles, except that usually in dysfunction related to sex, we find that these muscles tend to be a little bit overly active. And so something that we tend to call hyperactive pelvic floor. Um, this is this happens a little bit more often than we think in men it's not as often as in women um and in men the, the term is typically um it's usually associated with chronic pelvic pain syndrome and so a number of things can happen namely that you have because these muscles are so overly active they tend to decrease blood flow there's constriction of the blood supply and when that blood supply is constricted what you tend to have is a decreased flow in oxygen to the, mus um, to the surrounding areas, to the surrounding tissues. Because of the lack of oxygen, now we end up with a buildup in lactic acid. So any of you who've ever worked out, you know, you work out really hard 
and that soreness that you feel in your muscles not only that day but the, the next day so we call that delayed onset muscle soreness is as a result of lactic acid building up in the muscles so lack of oxygen because of this restricted blood flow is going to cause increase in lactic acid and that's going to cause symptoms like burning and throbbing for some of these men um, a lot of discomfort you'll find that um, men may have issues with sitting with standing they may have pain that's intermittent they may have pain that's constant they may find that when they go to urinate that that becomes painful they may find that they're unable to either achieve an erection or even if they have achieved the erection they're unable to maintain the erection so now that's where that concept of the erectile dysfunction comes in and they're not able to to have an orgasm or to orgasm as they normally would um, Additionally, we find that because of this over, overly um, tightening um, of these muscles, you can also have constriction of the nerves in the area. And if these nerves are constricted, and again, blood flow is compromised to these areas, you can also get some pain there and some, some um, neurological involvement. So namely the pudendal nerve um, in the area, you can get some stabbing, some zinging, things of that sort. So there's quite a number of things, but again, what men will start to notice when they're having these issues is they're gonna start to notice, hey, you know, sitting has been a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, I go to the bathroom, it burns when I pee, or, you know, I feel like I can't, I can't get the urine out, like I feel like I can't empty completely. They may have discomfort, whether it's burning or throbbing or whatever have you at the base of the shaft, also along um, the glands, which is the tip of the penis. And sometimes if we're having more pain there, we typically tend to associate that with more of the neurological dysfunction going on, probably because the muscles are too tight and compromising that nerve. They may also have just pain in general with any activities they're doing, difficulty having a bowel movement. Again, if these muscles are really, really tight, they may notice some bathroom changes as well. Um, but primarily, Again, when they're going to have sex, they're going to notice, you know what, I can't perform the way that I used to, something is wrong. Um, and so that's typically what you're going to find in the male population with regards to this. Now, the onset could be more sudden. Um, the onset could be gradual. It can vary from, from person to person. Um, it, you may note that if um, there are certain activities that you participate in, for example, if you're a cyclist, um, you know, sitting on a saddle for long periods of time, you may notice that there's some pain, there may be some numbness in the area. That usually tends to be more associated with the nerves. But again, if there's any irritation in that area, we can find we can end up having some compromise to those muscles, and this can lead to a cascade of other um, effects that are happening uh, in the bedroom. I also want to mention that oftentimes when men go to the doctor with these issues, what they will find is that they're having um, they're being diagnosed with something called um, prostatitis, and when they have this diagnosis, you know. Oftentimes, a lot of men are given this diagnosis and they're given things like antibiotics as a treatment. But the, typically, prostatitis is caused by some sort of bacterial infection. In the absence of a, of, of a positive culture 
then we definitely know that it's not that, that it is the pelvic floor that is playing a role. But unfortunately, we do have a, a lot of instances where people are going to the doctors, being diagnosed, and oftentimes not being cultured. So, you know, they're given the antibiotics, they're not noticing a change, um, you know, they may go to another physician, maybe a culture is not done. So again, they end up in this circle and this cycle, and unless the correct um, questions are being asked, um, then, you know, they don't know what's going on and, and really nobody knows what's going on. So sexual function is often one of those things that I recommend physicians, other physicians, ask their patients when they're coming in, they're getting physicals, they're coming in, they having complaints, you know, make sure that you're asking these questions because people don't generally divulge information with regards to the sexual function. Oftentimes people feel embarrassed. Um, um, oftentimes people feel like, you know what, maybe this is something that'll work itself out um, or whatever have you. But these are questions that should be asked um, often to individuals coming in. And, and I, I like the part that you actually highlighted quite the difference between prostatitis and um, pelvic floor dysfunction because quite often you can have some patients coming in and as you correctly said, they have a negative culture and if you're not careful, then you can go on in this cycle of sometimes even prescribing things that you should not prescribe to the patient. And so it's very important to have um, a greater approach in terms of having multiple specialties involved um, where you can cross consult to essentially give that patient the best possible outcome. Um, okay, so we, we've sort of dealt with men um, and I know that they're, they're, they're from what I'm seeing in here, we do have lots of men this evening and I encourage you if you have any questions, feel free to message in on the board or to call in. But while we wait for some of those questions to start coming in, um, Dr. Martin, can you, first of all, break down some of the problems that women can have um, from a pelvic floor standpoint? Let's, let's take it from as early as uh, teenage years um, mm -hmm. to premenopausal or sexually reproductive years and then postmenopausal years. Let's take it like that. Absolutely. So this is where I do see the majority of clients um, coming in with pelvic pain issues. Um, oftentimes, because, you know, they're having issues with just even any type of penetration. So the term for women that that's given with painful intercourse, primarily with women is going to be um, dyspareunia. And all that means is painful sex. But the thing with that is we want to look at a few things. Timing is very important. Simon is extremely important because I want to know when somebody is coming in and they're saying, hey, I've got pain with sex. Are you having pain with all types of penetration? So, for example, are you having pain when you put in a tampon? Are you having pain when you put in a menstrual cup or a disc? Are you are you having pain with intercourse only? What are you having pain with? Um, when did this pain start? Is this new? Have you been able to have successful and pain-free penetration before? Or have you always had pain with penetration? So this is where, especially with a lot of the teens, this is where the problem comes in. Because oftentimes you'll find teens, um, and more so with my athletes. So I think that a lot of them tend to 
be referred to get the help more often than not because who wants to compete wearing you know a pad or something like that for a lot of sports it's not it's not you know logical um, when you're talking about swimmers, competitive swimmers, when you're talking about gymnasts, now it's pretty much imperative. So they're either gonna gonna try to fight their way into using the tampon, regardless of whether it hurts or not, or you know they're they're gonna try to reach out to someone. Um, but oftentimes you'll notice that if women are reporting that they've had this issue from teenage years, then we know that there is a problem, right? Unfortunately. The problem is, is that we don't oftentimes see these people until now they're in their 20s. So they may have tried if they're if they're not, you know, that competitive athlete that might have had, you know, the 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 notion to say, hey, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why this hurts. Let me go ahead and and tell my parents, tell my coach, seek some help. Um, you know, if this is just the average individual for whom it's not a necessity, most often, more often than not, they just stop wearing tampons. Um, and what will happen is you'll find that then they, they attempt having sex later on and sex is painful and it's either at that point in time or when it becomes more critical and damning to a relationship that they tend to seek help. We also find that women will, will see about seven to 10 physicians before they're appropriately diagnosed. So I've had clients who have told me, you know, I went to the doctor and they said nothing was wrong with me. They took an x-ray. Well, that's not going to show what's happening at the muscle level. That's not going to give me any idea of what's happening physiologically with regards to those pelvic floor muscles. So it really, really, really is crucial to take a very, a very detailed history and find out what's going on. The other thing that could be um, causing a problem is we have a lot of younger adults. So we're talking teens, 20s and even in through the 30s who are on birth control. And oftentimes, and this, you know, without getting too sciencey for the listeners, oftentimes the use of birth control can cause some changes with regards to other hormone receptors within the body. Now, when that happens, women, especially those who might have found that they did not have pain with intercourse, may now find that they are having pain with intercourse after some time. Um, so if you've noticed that you once were pain free, um, but now you're not, again, that is, that is, that should be something that alerts you to, Hey, something is different. Something has changed. Something is going on. And then you seek, you seek some help for that. Um, because oftentimes, more often than not, will not go away on its own. Even sometimes after you have stopped using the birth control, some of those changes are still there. And so when women are coming in for that assessment, we want to look at, you know, the history. When, what is the timeline? When did these things start happening? We also want to look at the location. And I'll get into that in a little bit in terms of what that pelvic assessment will look like and looking at the location of their pain um, and whatnot. We also want to look at where is, where are they feeling the discomfort? So is it that you are having pain with penetration that we just cannot have anything enter? Is it superficial? Is it more at the entrance of the vagina? Or are you having pain with deeper penetration and thrusting? Oftentimes, if it's at the entrance of the vagina, we could be dealing with quite a few other issues and not necessarily the pelvic floor or only the pelvic floor. So we could be dealing with um, 
in a broader sense, vulvodynia, um, which is pain within the vulva in and around the vulva or vulvar region for greater than about three months, where we may dealing, be dealing with more specifically vestibulodynia, which is pain around the vestibule. Um, and the vestibule is just an area that is inside of the labia minora. So you've got two sets of lips, women. Um, you've got the, the, the bigger or thicker lips of the vagina, of, of the vulva, and then you've got thinner um, inner lips. And so inside of those thinner lips, you have an area called the vestibule. And sometimes this area can be um, the source of some discomfort or, or the site of inflammation and things of that sort. So that's one of the reasons why we want to know when you're having this pain with sex, where is it? We also may have pain that is associated with anxiety. So oftentimes women, there's a term called vaginismus. And vaginismus is oftentimes painful sex, but it's associated with some component of anxiety. Um, sometimes in the presence of, you know, a history of sexual abuse or sexual trauma. Um, sometimes just as a result of, you know, these women having had pain with intercourse and now because of that persistent pain, because of the anxiety surrounding um, the pain, relationship, a number of different factors, it can be it can um, be one of these things that just kind of perseverates, so to speak. And so we we have these women whereby what happens is with any attempts at penetration, the, the vagina, the vaginal walls go into these involuntary muscle spasms. But again, this is usually associated with some component of anxiety. And that in and of itself is going to, it may take a different approach because now we may have to get some mental health therapy involved. So I usually refer my clients dealing with vaginismus to a sex therapist uh, because we want to work on the mental aspect as well, not only the, not only the physical, um, because if we're not working on the two components, we're not going to see true success. Um, but when we're talking about that pain with deep penetration, that's where you definitely have the pelvic floor muscles involved. So it may be caused by this tightening of the pelvic floor muscles, this persistent um, tightening of the muscles. And again, going back to what I said before, if these muscles are really tight, you have to think that there's going to be this perpetual cycle. So the muscles are tight, they decrease the blood flow, that decreases the oxygen, causes a buildup in lactic acid and continues this spiraling, this cycling and, and, and this pain. So there's constant pain there. So we can't, A, you know, if, if we're having penetrative um, intercourse, anything going in there is going to cause, because of everything is so tight, is going to cause some discomfort um, to these muscles. They're very, very tight. You may have some abrasion. Some of these women may, may report that they're having some spotting as well with attempts at sex. Um, and then it just kind of continues. So we really want to look at relaxing those muscles, addressing the muscle tone, and there are a number of things that we can do for that, but definitely trying to get those muscles to relax so that we're not having that perpetual um, tightness. The other thing is now as we go into, as we, as we leave that young adulthood and we think about the woman, we're thinking about uh, female reproductive health on a continuum, we also have to factor in, you know, the postpartum woman. So the woman Absolutely. who's just had a baby. And the reason for that is 
this population of women will oftentimes report pain with intercourse. So oftentimes you're pregnant, you know, you have all these visits during your pregnancy, you have your baby, you follow up with your physician maybe six to eight weeks later, and the question is usually, do you want birth control? No. Okay, you're free to do as you please. I will see you in a year. And that's it. And some of these women aren't psychologically ready to have intercourse. Um, a lot of women will say, I just don't feel ready. Uh, but, you know, maybe they do it because, you know, pressure from the partner or they feel somewhat obligated or whatever have you. Um, but you find what the research has shown is as much as 60% of women, even six months after having a baby, will report pain with intercourse. That's a very, very high number. And even beyond that, so we find round about, you know, the one year mark, a year and a half, we're still having numbers as high as 30%. So 30% of women are still reporting pain with intercourse. Then there are a number of reasons for this, and that could include, you know, any orthopedic issues that might have occurred as a result of giving birth, you know, maybe some, some hip discomfort, pelvic girdle pain in general. So the women who might have had pubic symphysis dysfunction, things of that sort. But we also have to factor in, you know, the, the type of labor, the type of delivery. Does she have a long a long labor? Did she have a long second stage of labor, that pushing portion of labor? And what was that like? What was the result of that? Is there any pelvic organ prolapse? Is there any substantial weakness that is causing these, these organs now to descend into the vaginal, um, in, further into the pelvic cavity and onto the vaginal walls? Because now that can create a blockage, which can lend itself to discomfort. Um, was there any tearing, any type of perineal tearing? You know, did the doctor do an episiotomy? Those aren't done um, often anymore because there's, you know, the research has shown that there's really no relevance to doing an episiotomy. But, you know, is there any type of vaginal tearing? How severe was it? Was it severe enough that, it, you know, it warranted her to have stitches? Um, and if so, what was that healing process like? Because now there may be some scar tissue in the area. And if the, the tearing was very severe, so we have different, different um, severities of um, perineal tearing, but if the tearing was very severe, she might have torn all the way down through um, the anus, down to the anus, through those muscles, through the external anal sphincter. And so now that healing process is going to be a little bit more in depth because now we've got more trauma happening there. Um, the other thing is for some women, especially not not as much not happening as much now but there was something called a husband stitch which was a, an extra stitch that was done when women um, were being um, sutured after perineal tearing from having a baby and this was an extra stitch that was put in place to quote unquote make the vagina tighter and make sex more pleasurable more so for the husbands than for the women because it didn't serve any purpose for the women and what we find is more or less, you know, when we look at women who have gone back into their medical history and this would have happened to them, that they oftentimes report and, and are known to have more um, more tightness, more discomfort as well in those areas. So th this is something also to be considered because those muscles are going to be affected as a result of the birthing process. And then when we move into menopause, now we're going to have changes again, but now for a different reason, because now we're having hormonal changes. We're losing some of that estrogen because the estrogen is one of the reproductive hormones and we're no longer in that reproductive phase of life. So now we're going to have a decline of estrogen. But estrogen is very, very useful. Its presence is useful um, 
for stimulation of collagen and for keeping the tissues um, nice and robust. And when that estrogen level declines, then we may have some tissue changes. So women may note vaginal atrophy. Um, there may be things like um, phimosis of the clitoris. So whereby you see the, the clitoris itself starting to almost disappear. Um, there's decreased mobility in, in the clitoral hood. That should slide back a little bit. The clitoris is, is from the same embryo, embryologic tissue as the penis and the penile shaft. So you kind of think of being able to pull back foreskin on a penis. That's the same way that you can pull back um, the clitoral hood. But that um, becomes restricted. We also find um, some, again, some atrophy of those tissues and women will notice changes even in vaginal lubrication. So they may notice that they're a little bit dry. Um, another time when this happens is also in that postpartum period if women are breastfeeding because again, the estrogen levels tend to be a lot lower at that point in time as a result of breastfeeding. So women will notice that they're a little bit drier. Um, and so there, there's more friction there's more discomfort because of these tissue changes. Some women may note that it feels abrasive. Um, it just, you know, it's very uncomfortable. It feels, there feels like there is a blockage. So for one, we want to identify where is the woman at within her, the spectrum of her life? And then what is a timeline of these symptoms? So that we can truly identify what is going on um, and then we can target that specifically. Again, the pelvic floor muscles can play a role, but I, the, the entire pelvic region is very, very important and very crucial. So if, if we're having vaginal, for example, in the menopausal woman, we're having vaginal atrophy, it's not just going to happen on the inner, on the vaginal wall, but you have to also expect that there's going to be um, some changes to the muscle as well. We tend to normally, if we're not actively and intentionally, for example, exercising, we're going to notice some, some muscle changes as we age. And so that's no different to the pelvic floor muscles, just as, as it would happen with the other muscles. So it's, these are things that we, we definitely need to be mindful of. Okay, great. Um, so growing up, you would often hear of older women, most times uh, women who have had multiple children, speaking of something coming down. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a, quite a taboo area to even talk about or, or feeling a fullness in the vagina. Now, when you, you talk or you hear younger persons speaking, they often refer to doing something called Kegel exercises or using the yoni. So, so do you as a physiotherapist, one, recommend Kegel exercises? Um, are Kegel exercises universal and should be applied for everything? Or is there a time to use Kegel exercise and there's a time not to use Kegel exercise? I think you sort of alluded to it, but can you can you just explain that a bit more? Absolutely. So Kegels are, are were named after the person who kind of, you know, discovered the exercise or started women doing the exercise. And, and what it was was that he noticed that with strengthening of the muscles, there can be some benefit. However, the problem with, with this, again, we go back to we cannot put a Band-Aid on every diagnosis. We, it can't be a one-stop shop. We have to truly identify the source or the cause of the symptoms that people are, are, are having. Because again, dyspareunia, when we talk about pain with sex, or dyspareunia as it's otherwise called, that is a symptom. That doesn't tell me what's causing it. Now I have to go ahead and do the detective work and find out what is causing 
this individual to have pain with sex. And so for one, again, if we're looking at pain with sex um, from the aspect of pelvic floor dysfunction, that's typically not as a result of muscle weakness. It's typically as a result of overactivity of the muscle. So if we then go ahead and have a woman now who's already got overactive muscles, go ahead and activate those muscles even more, we could be adding insult to injury. So we could be perpetuating this condition. Where Kegels may be more beneficial is in the case of known weakness. So if we had the, the situation you described where women will feel that that heaviness, um, a feeling like something is falling out of the vagina, that is something called vaginal, called a prolapse. Um, vaginal prolapse and it's often associated with pelvic floor muscle weakness this can happen after childbirth um, it may also happen in that menopausal period again because of changes so we could have some weakness of the muscles but again um, we need to be cautious when performing these exercises because we have to look and see what's going on we can have some muscles that are tight and some muscles that are weak there are three different layers of pelvic floor muscles so it is quite possible that you may not have weakness at all of these muscles it may be quite possible that you could have some tightness you may also have some weakness the most important thing though is looking and identifying what the issue is making sure that the individuals have good awareness of the muscles. Can the muscle shorten? Can the muscles lengthen? Do you have control? What is the coordination like of these muscles? Because again, a Kegel in and of itself is just an isometric contraction. It's like if I if I was sitting down with my leg straight and I decided to, to flex my quad, so to speak, tighten my quad muscle, my thigh muscle, um, I can do that all day long. Functionally, does it help me? Not so much. Because there are other functional ways that I can go ahead then and strengthen the that same muscle so that it, it better serves me with the activities that I need to perform, whether it's walking, sports or whatever have you. Um, so just like that, you know, there's going to be there may be a time and a place for kegels, but certainly it should not necessarily be the go to um, for any individual who is dealing with um, pelvic floor dysfunction. Great. Um, I actually had a question that was submitted long before the show, um, and I, I wanted to bring it up because I thought it was a quite interesting question that was asked. And that was, can a person, a female, who has started sexual intercourse very early, can she then have pelvic floor problems later on in life because she actually started to have sex early? It wouldn't necessarily be because she started to have sex early. When we talk about um, the age that people are having sex, the primary concern, especially if they're younger, is going to be just maintaining proper sexual health. Um, oftentimes what you will find is, is that younger in, people who are having sex at younger ages tend to, tend to have sex with multiple partners. And so the issue at hand is, are they maintaining um, safe sexual habits? Um, because now they put themselves at risk for infections, um, sexually transmitted diseases, and so on. And these things can then lead to um, some you know, pelvic floor issues and, and, and issues down the road if we're not careful. So again, something like a yeast infection, especially chronic yeast infection, can lead to things like uh, bacterial vaginosis, 
And, and that can, in essence, because of the persistent irritation and inflammation, can then irritate the pelvic floor muscles, which can then again get us into that perpetual cycle of, you know, pain, you know, decreased circulation, more pain, more irritation, more inflammation, and so on. Um, that being said, though, I, I did want to mention that when individuals have, um, are dealing with pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, especially um, overactive pelvic floor muscles, the symptoms can mimic things like a UTI. So oftentimes women will go to the doctor and they're saying, I have a UTI. They're telling the doctor they have a UTI. You know, I've got burning, I, you know, I'm having urgency. I, I try to go pee, but it's not coming out. But this is a common symptom of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction as well, which is why it is imperative that if, you know, you suspect a UTI, again, that you're culturing for that. Is there an infection? Because then what can end up happening is now we go ahead and we administer antibiotics. And, you know, there is no change. So we come back to the doctor, maybe we do another round of antibiotics. But what this, what this is going to do is that now can have an effect on not only the gut, but also the, the, the woman's uh, microbiome, including the vaginal microbiome, and can set her up also for having some other issues as well. So we want to be mindful of that um, and not be so liberal with, with um, the prescribing of antibiotics for, for people who are coming in with these types of issues because sometimes it's definitely not a UTI. It can be that they're having um, pelvic floor dysfunction. And what we have to do is we need to start asking the questions um, other than, okay, you're having burning. You're having urgency. Okay, great. Those are symptoms of UTI. Boom. That's what you have. Now let's look and see if there is anything else going on. Okay. Good. Um, men. Let's go back to men. Um, you spoke about some men sometimes with the chronic pelvic pain, um, sometimes being frequently misdiagnosed as a prostatitis or a chronic prostatitis. But what about those men who may just simply have erectile dysfunction? Is this a conversation to have with the doctor first? Is this a conversation to have with the physiotherapist? Is, a, is this a conversation of saying, hey, doc, I would like you to refer me to a physiotherapist. How do you recommend? How does it work? Really just depends on the individual. And if, if, if it happens that they are having the conversation first with the physician, then it's something that they can bring up and they should feel comfortable bringing it up. Um, if it is something that, because again, one of the causes for erectile dysfunction is certainly pelvic floor dysfunction. Could it be the only cause? Not necessarily. So then we also have to look at this holistically from a top-down approach. You know, what is going on with this person's health? What does this person's stress level looks like? Look like? What does this person's lifestyle look like? You know, we need to start looking at all these things. So it's not that we're looking at things in isolation, but we really need to pay attention to the bigger picture. So if it is that they're going to their, they happen to be talking to their primary care doctor, then this is absolutely a question that they should be asking. Matter of fact, this is a question that all physicians should be asking um, their clients. And then, you know, but I would definitely say um, at least a consultation with a pelvic floor physical therapist, uh, making sure that the individual that you're seeing is versed in pelvic floor physical therapy, because again, not all physical therapists are going to specialize in pelvic floor therapy. So making sure that the individual that you're seeing is versed in this and able to go ahead and perform the necessary um, assessments 
and then subscribe or prescribe rather the the appropriate care and follow up and strategies and so on to kind of help you know address this issue. Okay. How easy is it for a patient to have their consultation done within the privacy of their home? Um, quite often, this is a completely taboo topic, and you, we want to sort of ensure that patients are as comfortable as possible. Um, should it be is should it be a situation where they should have these sessions done on their own? They sh if they're married or in a committed relationship, that they have them done as a couple or a team. And can these sessions be done at home? Um, so I'll answer. I'll answer um, the the couples part of that first. While I think that it is very important, especially um, you know, for those who are in committed relationships, to to be able to to be at a point whereby you can have your spouse there, that is not always appropriate. And this is really the decision of the individual. If someone is not comfortable with their spouse there, then that's something that needs to be respected. I like to typically see a lot of my clients. Um, with the spouse, but I don't do that initially. I need to make sure my client is my, my primary responsibility and concern, and I need to make sure that that individual feels cared for, feels safe, is successful um, with what we're doing, and when they are comfortable, then we can bring the partner on board um, so that the partner can can go ahead and, and be a part of that uh, of the process. Now, there are times when there are some partners who are phenomenal and, you know, supportive and, you know, sure, the spouse wants them there. You know, they want them to know, they want them to be aware. And I think there's a huge benefit to this, especially when we're talking about um, issues with painful intercourse um, because, you know, we need to be able to communicate that sometimes you may not be able to communicate what's going on with you um, as well as the physician does. And it lends a lot of credibility to the situation so that the partner can better understand if they have questions they can ask. And then we're, you know, when we're looking at things, for example, with my female clients, one of the things that I will tell them to do if they're having um, pain with intercourse is we're not having any penetrative sex. So, I am an advocate for self-exploration. I am an advocate for increased foreplay. I am an advocate for use of um, vibrators. Um, I hesitate to say sex toys because there's a plethora of those out there, but an advocate for that because one of the things that we also have to remember is that 70 to 75% of women will orgasm through clitoral stimulation alone, not penetration. And that being said, if we want to make sure that we can kind of regain that intimacy tract, we need to make sure that we're doing things whereby, you know, that person feels successful. So let's go ahead and take the stress out of the situation. You know, penetration hurts. Let's not penetrate. Let's start looking at other aspects of Other Yes. Um, let's look at other okay. things that can be done that would allow us to um, facilitate improvements, to decrease the stress, um, to still maintain the bond within the relationship. Um, more often than not, sexual dysfunction or sexual issues is gonna be one of the huge causes for um, strife within relationships um, and divorce. You know, it's right after like money problems because financial problems are typically the number one known cause for divorce and sexual, sexual and intimacy dysfunction is right up there with that. So 
you know, these things can weigh heavy on an individual. And so we want to make sure. But that being said, if the person is not comfortable, we also need to recognize um, trauma-informed care. Do we truly understand the dynamics within this relationship? If they're not comfortable, they shouldn't be forced. Uh, and we need to make sure that this person feels safe. And that, that may take a little bit of investigative work, you know, always making sure that you're asking them, you know, about their, their home life, their, their sex life. I want to know, you know, do you feel safe at home? Do you feel comfortable at home? Are, you know, have you in, in your past have any history of abuse, assault, anything of that sort? Because you need to know. And if this person does not feel safe, then you now become responsible for maintaining their safety, so to speak. Um, so those are things that you also need to consider and be aware of as a clinician. Um, that being said, it is very easy for people to receive care in the comfort of their home. I um, have been doing virtual visits with my clients for well over about six years now, um, whereby I see my clients virtually. Um, it's as easy as using your phone, which is probably how, how all of you guys that are listening are tuning into this podcast right now, but um, we're using your laptop or using your tablet and we do it via video format. Um, the only thing that's different is I can't physically touch you, but I can see you, I can look at movement, I can still instruct you in self-assessment. There's a whole ton of things that can be done. Um, and so it's very, very easy. And a lot of people feel very comfortable because there's nothing worse. And you know, when people are like, well, I don't know if I wanna go to, um, physical therapy for this and going to the clinic. What if I see my neighbor? You know, what if they ask me what I'm here for? You know, um, especially because some clinics are not specialty clinics. So you may be going there and maybe there's a pelvic floor therapist within that clinic as one of the staff members, but maybe everybody else is a general orthopedist or maybe they're a neurologic, uh, you know, a neurologically trained um, therapist or something like that. And so you've got all sorts of people going into this particular practice and they see a neighbor, a friend, a cousin, whatever. And they're like, Hey, what are you here for? And they're like, um, um, I hurt, I hurt, you know, I, I just, um, yeah, I'm here for therapy, you know? So we want people to feel comfortable. We want them to feel um, empowered. And I think a great way to do this is going to be, um, the use of those virtual visits so that they can, um, they can feel much more comfortable. Um, getting the help that they need. Is there, is there any particular exercise modality that you would recommend as a preliminary screen that would give a person an idea that they may have pelvic floor dysfunction? Not an exercise modality per se, but oftentimes we have to look at the symptoms. If you are having pain, so we're talking about pain with intercourse, if you are having, um, you know, difficulties with, you know, urination, maybe you're having, again, we're going back to that burning, that urgency, um, you feel like you can't completely empty your bladder. Same thing with your bowels. If you are having a difficult time going to the bathroom, you feel like you can't completely empty your bowels or you're just having a difficult time with going to the bathroom. Or if you're having, um, you're having leaking, you know, you're leaking urine, you're leaking feces, if you're having, especially um, for women, a lot of women, if the, if the pain is caused as a result of neurological compromise, they may note that they're having burning, stinging, itching. Um, also the same if these um, pelvic floor muscles are overactive. So if you're having any of those types of symptoms, 
if you are if you have had um, you know any troubles with delivery or recent delivery if you are menopausal and you have noticed any changes if you've noticed any any tissue changes whether you're male or female and especially in the women things like lichen sclerosis um, if you're noticing any skin changes in and around the vulva if you're if you've had any recent falls on the tailbone on the on the back the reason for that is is that these pelvic floor muscles the they attach the deep pelvic floor muscles attached to the coccyx so if we've got any compromise there then that can lend itself also to spasming of these muscles overactivity of these muscles and general inflammation and pain um, so there are quite a few uh, quite a few symptoms that you would notice um, if there was something going on that heaviness that feeling of something falling out um, things of that sort are going to be key in noting if there is um, an issue going on. Okay, uh, Dr. Martin, I just want to take a quick pause here. I saw that we had a, a listener actually calling in, Ram Martu. Would you like to call back in again so that we can answer your question? All right. All right. While he is calling in, um, I will continue to ask some questions. I don't know if it was a mistake, but we'll, we'll just continue on um, until we see if he calls back in. Um, in terms of outside of the realm of physiotherapy, is there any pharmacologic intervention that can be offered? And when should a person go beyond a physiotherapist to then seek the intervention of a medical doctor for pharmacological intervention or surgical intervention? So usually um, a, a pretty experienced physical therapist will be able to know when things are, or when more is needed. When we look at, for example, when we're looking at um, the female anatomy, um, there are specific areas whereby if there is pain um, in and around the vestibule, which is that area we spoke about earlier that's on the inside of the labia minora. But if we're having specific pain points within that region, we know right off the bat that there may be certain points that the causes of pain are not related to the pelvic floor. So if we're having pain closer to the clitoris um, in within that region, but more, more superior and closer to the clitoris, um, oftentimes that could be that could be as a result of hormones and hormonal influence. Um, it could be as a result of you know um, nerves. Sometimes people do. There is a situation where people may have too many nerve endings in the area, um, things of that sort. And so we may we may want to go ahead and refer back to a gynecologist so that pharmacological intervention can happen. If we are having some, and that's not to say that sometimes we may not need to do pelvic floor therapy, but there are times when in order to be successful, we may need that particular, we may need um, the medication um, and need that to take a hold before we can then continue. Um, in cases, for example, like lichen sclerosis, where we have dermatological changes um, on the vulva, the skin may get shiny, it gets Tight, we notice atrophy, vaginal opening starts to shrink, we lose sight of the clitoris because that tends to get scarred down. Oftentimes, these people are treated with some with a, a steroid, um, usually clobetazole. Um, and then that's always all 
often followed up with pelvic floor physical therapy and other um, interventions, dilators, um, and different things like that. Um, same thing with men. There may be times when, you know, for the erectile dysfunction, we go ahead and we look at um, certain medications that may help. Uh, but again, it really depends on the cause, not the symptom, but the cause um, of, of the issue. So we have to really do our, uh, our due diligence and do great detective work in determining what the issue is um, so that then we can go ahead and make the right prescription um, and refer that individual if necessary. Good. Now, you, you gave us quite a very robust appreciation of the role that the pelvic floor can have, a healthy pelvic floor can have in a healthy sexual interaction and what conditions or especially chronic conditions or chronic symptoms can cause in terms of a person that having problems even within their, their sexual existence. Um, so take home message essentially is you need to make sure, one, if you're having any of the symptoms, so painful um, sexual intercourse or what we call dyspronia, if the male is also having problems with having an, uh, an erection or maintaining an erection or even painful ejaculation, or that woman who is having pain anywhere on her spectrum of life, not only with sexual intercourse or repeated feelings of, if you may have some of the symptoms of a UTI, and there's no positive culture, either on the male or the female, then certainly it's, it's recommended that we want to have a look um, to actually see what is going on and take a deeper look into what is happening with that person and get them referred as early as possible. Um, any other take-homes, Dr. Martin, before we, we wrap up, because we're, we're starting to run out of time, and this year was too short. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, I could talk about the pelvic floor all day, and there's so much that's go that goes on, and there are so many different diagnoses um, that, that occur within the region. Um, but again, like you said, we need to be mindful of the symptoms. You know, it, specifically with regards to sex, sex should not be painful. Sex should be a pleasurable act. And sex is considered an activity of daily living, especially when we're thinking in, in the confines of, of a secure marriage. Um, or, or, you know, what, what you find is, or what we have found is that the number one reason for non-consummated marriages is as a result of dyspareunia. And so these women are not even able to consummate their marriages because of pain with intercourse. This is a problem. It happens, it happens too often, one in three women. And we, we need to make sure that if you are having any symptoms, any symptoms at all related to pain um, with intercourse, pain with inserting a tampon, you're having pain with sitting, prolonged sitting, you feel like there's a golf ball. This includes men as well. Some men may report, I feel like I, I'm sitting on a golf ball. Um, you know, any of these things, and we definitely want to make sure that we're reaching out to somebody for help. Outside of that, if we're noticing any issues um, with regards to urine or our bowel um, function, so we should be able to urinate um, whenever we want to, you know, we go ahead, we relax, we urinate, and then when we're done, the muscles go ahead and, and act to stop us from leaking. But if there's any dysfunction in these muscles, we'll notice incontinence, we may notice urgency, we may notice hesitancy, we may notice an inability to completely empty. 
um, and that goes for both urine and feces. And this is really, really important because oftentimes the pelvic floor muscles, pelvic floor muscle dysfunction can elicit these symptoms. Sometimes, again, these women may, women may have um, feelings of an infection. Understand and recognize that these feelings in the absence of a positive culture can also be attributed to pelvic floor dysfunction. So there's quite a lot going on. I always tell people, get to, you need to know yourself. You need to know your body. You need to know what your norms are. You need to pay attention and you need to make sure that you're not afraid to reach out for help. Um, that you're not afraid to seek help and the assistance that you need. Good. Ranmar, I actually just saw that you were you were trying to call back in a second time. Do you want to try to get that call back in before we tidy up here? I see that they're asking for a part two. <laughs> uh, quite informative. Um, so at some point in time, um, Dr. Martin, we'll probably like you to come back and not just speak about sex this time, but really just uh, pelvic floor dysfunction on a whole. Mm -hmm. And and when it starts to um, cause other problems mm -hmm. in, in life. Um, but again, I want to say thank you so much um, for taking the time out. I know you're quite busy um, to join us this evening, really to, to explain or to take some of the, the uh, cobwebs or ice or the taboo surrounding uh, sexual matters away and really bring some clarity to a matter that that is sometimes very often hidden and and i want to say thank you thank you also to our listeners who took the time out this evening to participate um i know a lot of you guys are quite quiet some some almost shy um, in terms of answering questions but i hope uh, it was actually quite beneficial i'm seeing some of the reports saying very informative um, and I just want to encourage you, if you're new to the actual podcast, that you can actually follow us on either Podbean or Anchor and join us next week on Thursday Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. Good evening and thank you.